0: In a minute, I'm gonna play the second half of my interview with Casey Anderson. In it, we have a candid discussion about just how tough it is to eke out a living as a musician on the fringe of mainstream fame. Casey also shares with me that he fully intended to stop recording music altogether after being released from prison. Had he stuck to his word, the world wouldn't have the Hawks and Doves record, 2018's From a White Hotel, which features some of Casey's finest work to date. We also wouldn't have Casey's forthcoming solo album, To The Places We Lived, which is slated to be released this spring. In last week's episode, I played a clip of an early version of the first track off To The Places We Lived, and right now, with Casey's permission, I'm gonna play a short clip of an early version of the ninth and final track off the album. If Casey never records another record, which he's alluded to, then this track is a beautiful, sonorous finale a temperature check of where he is, and an inventory of where he's been. But the track, which, as is Anderson's style, bookends this record's themes and characters, will leave you wanting more. All nine songs on To The Places We Lived are so compelling, at once mature and fresh, that I sure hope this gradually retiring songwriter can push off retirement for at least a few more verses. Here's a clip of the forthcoming album's eponymous track, To The Places We Lived. Stick around afterwards for part two of our interview and be sure to go pre-order the record now at caseyandersonmusic.com. The places we live
1: And it kept us shut in So we started chasing the ghosts of great Wouldn't close. The days when we shook like a train in the tunnels below A strange
0: Casey, four original solo albums with a fifth on the way, two original album releases with a backing band credited, countless live performances on both sides of the Atlantic. You've toured with Jason Isbell, whom you've mentioned earlier, Steve Earle, who you mentioned earlier. If there's a viewer out there who watches this interview and thinks to herself or himself, how did he do it? How did Casey Anderson find success as a musician in a society where it's becoming increasingly tough to do so? What would you tell them? Uh, I would tell
1: them to first of all um, interrogate what their idea of success is. <laughs> I think that um, I think that there is a perception that still exists among people that that if someone has had a career like mine then that means it has been financially rewarding in a way that it has not been. Um, I mean I have you know I, I have a full-time job at a nonprofit recovery services organization here in Portland that pays the bills and the music work is especially now as I'm gigging significantly less you know my records are a few years apart so that's that's that is a, an occasionally nice bit of supplemental income um, sure. but it's not it's not a living by any stretch of the imagination and I think you know I think there's it's in a it's in the mud honey documentary maybe which is called I'm now they talk about how Mark arm, um, at least as of, as of the documentary, still worked at the Sub Pop warehouse. He packed all the wow. packages for Sub Pop, and, and they talk wow. about how there's this perception that you see Honey playing to 30,000 people at a festival right. in Spain, and you assume these people are all living comfortably at the very least, and that's just not the case. Sure. Um, so mu- music is not an industry where it's especially easy to sustain a livable wage. Um, but the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, I was very open to feedback and I had some some teachers and some mentors who were very generous with their time and their advice. Uh, and I took that and I worked really hard to learn how to write songs in a way that I thought could reach people. Um, and, and it was just putting in the work, you know, I learned to write in, in a way that I thought reached people. I learned to edit in a very careful way. Um, I learned to record from Eric Amble and Kurt Block and a lot of other people in a way that I thought invited listeners into the records uh, and still challenged me creatively. Um, and I, I think that you know, that's the key to any kind of career that you have, whether it's in music or, or anything else You know, that you find yourself called to do. It's, it's understanding that there's a really fun part of the job and that is, probably takes up about 10% of the time that you spend. And, and the rest is, is real work.
0: Yeah, in Joe Pug in, in, in one of his interviews on a really good podcast he does called The Working Songwriter, uh, he, he talks about how most songs uh, are start as a kernel that kind of finds you mystically, right? It's the part of your brain that's a little bit more uh, creative. And then the rest of the song that you build around this, this kernel is uh, uses the, the other part of your brain that, that, that you use when you're completing crossword puzzles yeah
1: um. <laughs> yeah yeah that Joe is Joe is so good too. I mean that's so that's so insightful and dead on. it's it's sometimes a line or a word or a melody. and that's the magic part of it. you know that's right. that's the magic part of creativity. and the rest of it is math. The rest right. of it is is trying to find out how to make everything fit and how to make everything add up and what goes where. Um, and yeah, that's a great that's a great way to put it the way Joe
0: did. In December 2013, you went to prison for fraud. Your recent interview with Nadia Bowles-Weber on the confessional does a really great job of comprehensively explaining the details of that chapter of your life. So for anyone who wants to know more about the specifics of that case and your part in it, I would recommend they check out that podcast episode. For the purposes of this interview, I would like to know how that period of your life affected your music. Were you actively writing new music during the lead up to your incarceration?
1: Uh, I was not really. So I was in 2000, at the end of 2012, kind of in the wake of my crime becoming public. um, I went to treatment for substance use disorder. And I was diagnosed with type one bipolar disorder, probably about 10 years later than I could have been diagnosed if I had, if I had put in the work to go seek a diagnosis. Um, And Part, and with that diagnosis came a course of medication, uh, lithium and Zoloft specifically. And lithium has this reputation of being a medication that kind of dulls the creative edges of a person's brain. Um, and so in the period before I was incarcerated, I leaned really heavily into the math, what I just talked about as the math of writing. So I thought, okay, maybe I'm not going to have those kernels anymore. Maybe I'm not going to have those flashes of a line that comes to me at two o'clock in the morning before I'm going to fall asleep and I jot it down. And then tomorrow I can build a song around it. Maybe I just have the trade that I learned and, you know, the work ethic to put in the work to continue to do that trade. And so I kind of learned to write songs a different way. I learned to really build songs from the ground up and not depend on that flash of inspiration. Um, And as I got more used to the medication and over the course of, of my life changed medications, um, you know, the, those creative impulses came back and I I still write mostly around, you know, an idea that has come to me in a really magical moment. Um, But I, so I was writing, but they were mostly writing exercises to sort of keep myself honed. And the same in prison. I I got a couple songs. I got maybe four songs out of my, out of my years in in prison, but I was doing mostly a lot of writing exercises the same way, you know, that people, when they're incarcerated, do physical exercise. I just wanted to stay in shape because I knew that at some point I would be released and maybe I would go back to having a career. Maybe I would not, you know, I, I assumed that I probably would not, but I, I also knew that songwriting was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life, whether it was myself alone in an apartment or at a show for people. And so I wanted to keep those muscles, you know, as healthy as I could.
0: Yeah, limber. Uh, have the experiences from that part of your life shown up in your writing?
1: Uh, the, yeah, I mean, yes, it's it's hard to like untangle that sure. experience from from the rest of my life now, but they, they as I said, in that they're more overt in the Hawks and Doves record. That Hawks and Doves record is more really about isolation and then, you know, looking at the world around me through a different set of eyes after being incarcerated. And this record is more about, you know, trying to appreciate the support that I have and, and you know, the healing that I have been through and that others have been through with me and, and open myself up to trying to be receptive to whatever life is from here out and not trying to dictate, you know, life on my terms, not trying to live on my terms. Um, and so I think, you know, because those experiences inform my life and will inform me for the rest of my life, they can't help but inform the songs in some way. I'm not always sure. writing, you know, like I'm not writing prison songs or I'm not, there's not like a right. just got out of prison song right. on this record, but but it's all in
0: there. Sure. Um, Do you feel like the experiences from that part of your life altered your relationship with music?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, for, for sure, there is a very deep, deep appreciation now for the people who still listen to my records that maybe I didn't, maybe I took for granted before I went to prison, you know, when I, when I was released, my intention was not to ever release a record again. Um, and, I started to see support from a community of people who had my records and and who were willing to forgive me for you know for things that I had maybe not done to them but things that were still you know pretty reprehensible nonetheless.
0: Um, and, and we're tied to music.
1: And we're tied to music. Yeah, right. we're tied to the music industry and and are, we're kind of inseparable from sure. my career and identity as a musician. And so um, you know that gave me appreciation not just for the human capacity for forgiveness but also for you know people's capacity to appreciate work and separate it from the artist and then allow for the artist to be a person who changes and who grows mm. over the course of their life cool. and so that gave me a real appreciation for my audience that i don't think i had before um it kept me right-sized as they say in in some recovery programs mm. um and so I think that that, you know, that led directly to me, as I said earlier, being a little bit more accessible and a little bit more open to people who wanted to reach out and have conversations. Um, and then, you know, I mean, it, it it informs kind of the limits that I put on myself in terms of what I'm willing to do as an artist and performer now and and where I'm willing to go and how much I'm willing to travel and you know, I was a person who who traveled a lot for music, um, and also, you know, because I was so heavily involved with with substance use and. Um, committed that crime. I didn't see my family a lot. I didn't, I wasn't a great friend to people. I wasn't a a very supportive member of anybody's community. And so those things have really been prioritized in my life, which means I have to really think about the decisions I make in my career and think about, you know, if I'm, if I go on tour for two months, what does that mean to my wife? What does it mean to my mother? What does it mean to my brother and his wife? What does it mean to my community? Um, And so that that's really informed kind of the way that I carry myself through my career now.
0: Cool. Interesting. Uh, So you're now out of prison. You're working as a program coordinator at a substance recovery uh, program you mentioned before the nonprofit Um, you yourself are sober. Uh, You're paying monthly restitution as a consequence of your uh, crime. And if I'm not mistaken, you're married with a child on the way. Uh, During a year that's been riddled with worldwide public health crises, large scale infringements on human rights and historic rates of natural disaster. It seems, at least from the outside looking in, that 2020 has, in a lot of ways, still been a year of personal growth for you. Emma. Would I be right about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I've had a very, um, everybody has had a hard year in different ways to varying degrees. I mean, we had, we, we lost my father in February. Sorry um, thanks. And I think that, you know, I, I talk to my mom and my brother every day and, I think that all of us in our family have have really struggled to figure out how to grieve, how to separate personal grief from the collective grief that everybody's experiencing mm-hmm. right now over different things. So I think that it's it's been hard for a lot of people who have experienced loss personally to separate their own personal grief or to separate the strands of grief. You know, I lost I've lost friends over the course of this year, um, and most people I know have lost have lost friends or loved ones over the course of this year. Sure. And then, of course, like as you said, you know, we're seeing police murders unfold, we're seeing violent tragedies day after day, we're seeing, um, you know, significant human rights violations, um, and these, none, none of these things are new, none of these things are are just started happening in 2020 or just started happening in 2016 after the election. These are things that date back to the history of this country and the history of civilization. Um, but it's it's increasingly difficult to separate the strains of grief. At least for me, it's, mm-hmm. it's just it's it's been very overwhelming. But as you said, I mean, still, this is a year where I I have retained my job. Um, I'm able to do work that I'm passionate about. I'm able to work in communities that that I care a great deal about. Um, my wife's. Pregnancy has been really a joy for us. It's been something to be excited about and look forward to, and, and we're very fortunate for that. So, That's awesome. yeah, and I and I think that, um, I mean, it sounds really pat to say, and I, I think that it's a big ask to say you have to find joy where you can. Um, but everybody I know, you know, no matter what they're impacted by or the degree to which they're suffering this year, I think everybody is trying to find joy where they can. Um, and so... Uh, you know, I just am am very fortunate in that I've had something for the past eight and a half months that's very readily accessible. I have a very, you know, I have a physical point of joy that I can look at every day and be right. excited about. And, and so I'm very fortunate in that I don't have to look too far or too hard to find that thing. That's awesome. That's
0: beautiful. Um, a recent widely shared political ad featured a reworked version of your song, The Dangerous Ones. I've gathered through other interviews and following your social media that this ad has introduced your music to countless listeners who have not otherwise heard it. And it's no doubt made you a few new fans. So what's your connection to politics personally and musically?
1: Well, um, I think the two are inseparable to me. Um, the, you know, I, I as I've grown throughout the course of my life to be deeper involved with organization, with activism work, um, with social justice work in in my community and in other communities, it's, it's been impossible to disentangle that from the way that I write or the things that I write about. Um, and I live in a state, you know, I love, I love Portland very much. Um, I I feel very strongly tied to this city, but it's one of it's a city with one of the most troubling racist histories in the country. And Oregon is a state that was founded, you know, originally as a Confederate haven. Um, And Portland is still the widest major urban area in the country uh, and very aggressively so. And there is a long, long history of, you know, neo-Nazi activism here. There's a reason that groups like the Proud Boys, feel like they're welcome in Portland or feel like they have a right to certain areas of Portland. Um, and I, I think that I'm still waiting. And a lot of us here are still waiting for the communities in Portland and the city government in Portland uh, and the citizens of Portland to do a really strong interrogation of that history and their complicity in it. And so that's frustrating to me. And that informs the work too, you know, it's, it's sure. frustrating and challenging to live in a place that you love very much, but are consistently disappointed with and disgusted by. Uh, and and so that's in the work. And I think that, you know, I have tried, especially on this most recent record to do less rhetorical writing and less projecting and to do a bit more interrogation and investigation of myself and my own involvement in my community and the communities I care about. Um, and so that's informed the work too.
0: Cool. Would you consider yourself, you mentioned Bob Dylan as an influence earlier now, uh, some of what you're saying about your connection to, to politics and and social justice and and reform and self-reflection is making me think um, of of your of a, of a possible characterization of Casey Anderson as a folk singer. would you consider yourself kind of a modern day folk singer in the in the in like the traditional kind of canon?
1: Um. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I mean, I guess as much as as we talked about earlier, as much as genres apply to artists, and I I think folk music or some of the um, ideals and tenets of of the folk music movement can apply to the work that I do. Um, I also think it's just a matter of being what Springsteen has referred to as a spiritual songwriter. In that, in a lot of ways, when I'm writing, I'm addressing faith, and I don't necessarily mean any sort of religious based faith but i'm addressing the ideas of community and i'm addressing the ideas of connection that are so closely tethered to faith to me that you know i i feel like that description as a spiritual songwriter in that you're entering into a conversation with your audience in which you're asking them to consider what faith means to them and what community means to them and what they're willing to do to support and foster the ideas of faith and community in their lives i mean that's really important work to me so and that's you know that's 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 work that folk singers do
0: to sure. I mean, oh, absolutely. You know. Um I'm gonna change gears here for a second. Sure. Uh to the to the places we lived is your forthcoming studio album. What can you tell us about the album? And you have mentioned a little bits and pieces here and there about how it how it was conceived of. Um, but I'd love to hear anything anything additional that you, you might want to tell us to describe that album.
1: Sure. Uh so I when I set out to write the record, I wrote it as with the idea that it would probably be the last record I would make for a while. Um, I thought, you know, the Hawks and Doves record came out and it got more attention than I expected it to. And I did a short tour the summer of 2018 um, and the shows were much busier than I expected them to be. And um, I felt like when I made the record, I felt like that was going to be my last. And then over the course of coming back into contact and into conversation with the people who listened to my records, I thought that I owed them at least another part of that conversation. Um, and so knowing that Nowhere Nights is the record that probably drew most people into my work, um, knowing that a lot of people kind of used the Counting Crows cover of Teenage Gravity as entry points or you know had heard Don't Look Back at some point I wanted to make a record where I revisited the person from Nowhere Nights and tried to kind of close up those conversations as best I could or tried to check back in with with those songs. And so to the places we live was written really directly as a response to the characters in Nowhere Nights. Um, It's sort of like little updates or check ins with each of those characters um, and with myself. And I, you know, I wrote it really purposefully with that in mind and sequenced it with that in mind and arranged it musically with those songs in mind. Um, After Nowhere Nights, you know, I made those two, those two records with the band Heart of a Dog and Let the Bloody Moon Rise and the rule for those sessions that got broken. But I went into those sessions saying, like, we're not playing acoustic instruments on this record, on these records. Mm -hmm. These are going to be rock and roll. These are going to be loud rock and roll records. Um, And this one. I thought, okay, if I'm going to make a record that is in conversation with Nowhere Nights, then it should be musically in conversation with Nowhere Nights too, and and the arrangements should reflect that. And so we recorded it really purposefully in a way that
0: reflects that too. Wow, I'm excited. Uh, when when yeah, yeah. when can we expect the release?
1: Uh, sometime next year. I want to okay. say. I want to say spring but i also want to be able to at least play a handful of shows around the record when it comes out and so i'm hoping that by late summer it will be safe for people to gather in in some way you know i've seen people play safely distanced shows at bigger venues and that makes sense but i'm not like you know like i don't have the audience that i could play a drive-in and have have work. um so I whatever we can figure out to do for a, a 250 to 500 person club, you know, however many people that we can fit in there, I want to be able to play at least some shows around this record in in cities that have been really traditionally receptive to my songs and supportive of my songs. So I'm looking at Summer. Um, I'll send you some stuff, though, within the next week or two. We're still kind of working on cool. the album, but, but you know, I'll send you some songs to listen uh, to. Yeah, so I'd, I'd,
0: I'd love that. I appreciate it. That'd, that'd, yeah, be, yeah. that'd be awesome. Um, So is it still... It, is it, is it being mastered or are you still recording tracks?
1: It's, we're, we're finishing recording tracks. So I, um there were two songs left over that we just couldn't figure out. Like every, you know, everybody in the band had kind of taken a crack at them and some of the stuff worked and some of it didn't. And then the pandemic happened and for a while, no one was going anywhere. And then, you know, musicians and creative people had to learn how to be home recording experts, um, sure. <laughs> those of us who weren't already had to learn how to be home recording experts on the fly. Right. And so we reapproached re-appro- a couple of the tracks with some people doing work at home. Um, and that, it just wasn't working out, not because people weren't playing well, but because it became increasingly difficult for me to convey what I heard in my head to people via email or text message or zoom call. Right. Like when we're all in the studio working together, you can give instant feedback. I can say, you know, play this, the piano part needs to be this and someone will play it. And if they get it Mm -hmm. great. And if they don't, then I can say like, okay, the, the last verse is here's, here's what we're going to do for these 16 bars. And it's harder to do when you're not all in the same room together. Um, And so Finally, I just, this week, like yesterday, uh, reached out to Steve Selvage and Franz Nikolai from The Hold Steady and said, I have a couple of songs that need like, I'm tired of telling people they need to sound like The Hold Steady. Like they should just, it should just be The Hold Steady on these songs. Um, So we'll finish those two up hopefully within the next couple of weeks and and Steve and Franz will get their parts on there and then um, the record will be ready to be mixed and mastered. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. I'm a big whole steady fan. How did you first link up with them?
1: Uh, we have some mutual friends in Memphis. This okay. this drummer Sean Zorn, who plays with Corey Brandon and um, played in Chris from Dashboard Confessionals side project. Um, and is a, Sean is Any an forks? incredible drummer. Um or something. Say what? Oh, twin twin, twin, twin forks. forks. Yeah, yeah, twin forks. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, Sean is a great drummer, and I just said you know, like I had kind of reached the limit of folks that i wanted to play on the record and i just i sent him a message that was like man i'm so tired of asking people to play like the whole steady and he was like well then just ask steve and france to do it and and so he kind of set us up and, and so we've known each other for a while now cool. and, um yeah it's good there's a lot of great like you know we the sessions happened when people could still get together so we had there's some folks from the decemberists there's some folks from brandy carlisle's band on this there's oh wow um, you know, Dan from County Crows is on it. Some of the guys from my old band are on it. Cool. Um, I tried to make it kind of a recap of my entire, like I reached out to everybody that I had worked with over the course of the last 15, 20 years and and tried to involve them in the process in some way, even if it was just like, you know, here's two tracks, just put guitar on two tracks, you know, not everybody could be at the
0: sessions, but I
1: tried to, to tie up as many loose ends as I could.
0: Oh man, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so has the coronavirus affected the timeline of, of of the release in any other way, or did it affect the, the the manner of of recording aside from the fact that folks were kind of compartmentalized in their own home studios? Yeah, well, I mean, we the album was I felt like
1: it was ready in February, and then my dad passed, and then I was like, let me sit on it for a while, <clears throat> and then the more I sat on it, the more I started to think, okay, this we can change this part, or mm. this is not working for me. You know, the more I listen to this and, and the more I'm critical of this, this is not working for me. And and I'm, it's really, really not great for me to have that much time on my hands to listen to stuff and to have sure. the opportunity to pick things apart. Um, and Regina, so- Regina
0: Spector re-recorded an entire album after it had been mastered. It was on shelves, ready to sell. She heard it one too many times and who knows what it originally sounded like, but I think it turned out pretty well. So perhaps it, yeah, was, yeah. it was a good idea. Yeah.
1: I mean, there's, we, we recorded so much of this record live that it was really, you know, we would get to a point where I would call the engineer or text him and just say like, Hey, this guitar track, it's not working. And he would be like, okay, that's cool. But you have to understand it's also in the drum mics and it's also in the uh, piano mics and like, there's really no way to get rid of it. So sure. there's only so much reworking we could do, but, but to the extent that I was, felt like a couple of the takes fell short That I wanted to fix it. And then, then, you know, we got into this thing where it was like, <clears throat> I sent one of the tracks to uh, my friend, Mike Grigoni, who plays dobro and lap steel and, and was like, just add a dobro to this. And it sounded so good. And then I was like, okay, well now he asked, now it has to be,
0: Mike has to else. be all over the record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, So you you mentioned you will be touring as long as it can be done in a safe way and you're shooting for maybe you said spring or summer, uh, depending upon what happens, there's so many unknowns. Um, Do you, will that be a national tour?
1: Yeah, I think it'll be, um, I mean, it it won't be really extensive, but there are some, some cities where, Traditionally, folks have been really receptive to shows and really receptive to my records, like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Bay Area, um, a couple of places in the middle of the country, Texas, Nashville. Um, I, and I want to hit all those places, you know? And I, and I don't... I think one thing that I'll have to really think about is the degree to which people are able to travel to see shows at that point. Like, I don't... Sure. I, I don't if there are people in Indiana who can't make it, to Nashville to see a show then I, I want to try and make sure that that if this is the last thing that I do for a while then I'm able to reach out to as many people as I can so um cool. you know but I'll also have I'll have a baby who's not even a year old by right. next summer so we'll just have to weigh you know continue yeah. to weigh one thing against the other
0: well I can say for my part I hope it's not the last thing you do in a while um and you're certainly always welcome here in Charleston South Carolina I know a bunch of, a good handful of folks who'd love to hear you live. So, uh, swing, cool. swing down to the Southeast. Uh, if you, if, if, uh, the opportunity presents itself, um, and we're right up on, on, uh, on 2 PM here Eastern. so 11 AM your time. I just wanted to thank you again for, for carving out a little bit of time to chat chat shop and talk about music and really, really, really looking forward to the new album. So thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, man. Thank you. This has been great. This is really fun. Like I, I just looked up at the clock a couple minutes ago and it was, like 1048 and I was like, Oh wow, this, this has really (laughs) flown by. This is great. You know, I, I don't do, um, I was thinking this morning as I was making coffee, like I don't do a lot of press anymore. And I especially don't do it when I don't have something immediately to promote, but, but your thing is so cool that I wanted to do it, you know, whenever, whenever you felt like you were ready to do it. So I was, I'm so grateful that you reached out and was really happy to talk to you and I'll, uh, you know, let's, let's keep in touch as much as you want to. And I'll send you some, some at least rough mixes over the next couple of weeks when we get those knocked into shape.
0: That sounds great, man. I really, really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I will absolutely take you up on that. And um, I look forward to, to seeing what's next from, from Casey Anderson. So thank you again. And um, to all my listeners out there, I appreciate you tuning in and yeah, appreciate it. So I'll I'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Take care. Stay safe. You too. See you Casey. See you. Folks, thanks for listening to the interview. I'll see you next week. Remember to go pre-order Casey's album at caseyandersonmusic.com.